This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. And thus, Genzoe Sashin is underway. Here we are. Now we are. And in this session, we're taking a look at this essay by Dogen Zenji called Ungraspable Mind, or Mind Cannot Be Grasped. In Japanese, Shobogenzo, Treasury of the True Dharma I, Shin Fukatoku. Shin Fukatoku. And the first uh, word of this title of this essay is Shin. And there's the, um, the Chinese characters are written there. That first one is Shin in Chinese, also pronounced Shin. And it means mind or heart. And it's the Chinese and Japanese way of translating the the Sanskrit term chitta means mind or heart. And mind is a real essential issue in Zen. There's an essay of Dogen's called um, The Buddha Way, I think this is. And uh, Dogen is, is kind of critical of naming our lineage anything. He kind of goes on a little bit of a rant. We shouldn't really call it the Zen school. I think it's his way of saying it's um, maybe it's a little too narrow to call it anything. Like he says we can call it the Buddha way, but let's not call it a school or a sect or um, yeah, something like that, even though. I think probably as soon as Dogen died, they started calling it the Zen school. <laughs> we don't mind. But I think his point was that it's been called many things, this, this special transmission outside the sutras, uh, transmitted from Bodhidharma to China, and a uh, unique tradition where we find ourselves in that we sometimes provisionally call Zen. But Dogen in this essay says, people call it other things too, which he's, he's kind of critical of calling it anything, but he says, in those days in China, people were calling the Zen school, also calling it the mind school. It was just another popular name. And so, um, so I bring that up just to 
point out how how central this issue of mind is. We are um, putting aside, getting stuck in names. We could say, people say, what kind of Buddhism do you practice? I practice in the mind school. <laughs> it's like, that's what we're, that's what we're looking at. And uh, Dogen has another essay called Mind Itself is Buddha. And in the the Soto Shu, that's another na- provisional name of our school, the Soto Shu, means the, the Cao Dong school from Cao Shan and Dong Shan. Uh, but in the, so the, in the constitution of our Japanese uh, Soto school, uh, at the very beginning of this, there's a, you might not have known that the Soto school has a constitution. <laughs> You know, all the kind of um, structure of how the school is, is works in Japan, how all the temples are parts of other temples and all the different positions within the school, just like any organization might have. But it starts out with like the kind of, not exactly a mission statement, but like a, the kind of, um, what they call it, the... The, the basic point of the school and the, um, the kind of definition of the school and uh, the tenets, I think is what it's called in this constitution. The central tenets of, the, um, of our Soto school are shikantaza, uh, just wholeheartedly sitting, and mind itself is Buddha. So a lot of us hear about just sitting as a kind of central practice, but uh, but along with that, kind of defining this tradition is mind itself is Buddha. So um, so mind is central, and what is mind? So we can look at this weekend, and um, we're in the end. I, I warn you, we won't really be able to say because mind is ungraspable. And yet we can try to clarify what that means. In the Buddhist tradition, um, before Zen too, mind was a central issue. And generally, mind in general could be defined as that which is aware But uh, more specifically, I think it's helpful to make the distinction between two types of mind. And in Zen, part of the trouble is that this one word character, Shin, here, uh, is used for both these types of mind. And these two types are aspects of mind. So they're they're not completely different and yet this distinction is an important one for zen and i think that will play out in this essay so um i'd say these two types of mind two ways of looking at mind two aspects of mind are uh, dualistic mind which um dual means two right 
So dualistic means a mind that seems to be divided into two parts. It's one way to talk about dualistic. It's divided into a subject and an object. That's dualistic mind. It appears to function as something being aware of something else. Like dualistic mind or consciousness. Generally in Buddhism, when we use the word consciousness, this is all a work in progress of translating a bunch of Asian terms into English, right? So the, um, the Sanskrit term vijnana seems to be standardly now translated into, um, into English across all traditions. Not universally, but most commonly translated as consciousness. So um, if consciousness is, means vijnana, then um, consciousness is defined as dualistic awareness, dualistic knowing. I think it's nice to clarify these terms. Other traditions maybe use them differently. Consciousness can be like non-dual mind. But in Buddhism, it seems to be kind of like this. Consciousness, let's, for this weekend, let's use it this way. Consciousness means um, the apparent uh, division of knowing or awareness into a subject and an object. And so this uh, consciousness also can be broken into different types. There's all the six senses uh, have their own consciousness. This is Buddha's early teaching and throughout. So like the eyes that see, uh, you say the eye faculty is like the capacity to see and then colors are like what is seen, but there's an eye consciousness in Buddha's kind of model of how the mind works. Eye consciousness is, remember if we say mind or consciousness is what is aware, we could say the eye consciousness is what is aware of colors. We don't say that the eyeball is actually, eyeball is a kind of just sensitivity to light. It's not actually aware or knowing, but the eye consciousness uh, is what makes knowing colors possible, or awareness of colors. So that's called a consciousness, the chakshur vijnana, and uh, so it's dualistic. I think it's kind of interesting, because sometimes we think dualistic mind means like conceptual mind, but this is an example of a dualistic consciousness that's not conceptual. You can have, you can have duality without... Um, conceptual mediation in this model. Uh, the I consciousness is aware of colors that um, seem to be other than itself. Right? The colors, it seems like the, uh, the seeing of a color is seeing the color is something, seems to be something other than, um, than that which is aware of it. Right? So the ear consciousness is aware of sounds that seem to be something other than itself. The nose consciousness is aware of smells, taste consciousness aware of tastes, and body 
consciousness is aware of tactile sensations. And uh, those are the five so-called physical sense consciousnesses. And then there's the sixth mental consciousness that's um, aware of thoughts and feelings and emotions. And it also works together with the five physical senses to, um, to kind of be able to know that we're knowing a color, for example. Because the eye consciousness is non-conceptual, so it's registering color. But then when we say, like, um, oh yeah, I'm seeing a, a brown post here. Yeah, that's what that is, a brown post. Do you see that brown post? Now it's like mental consciousness is op- with its conceptions operating along with the visual consciousness. So all of these are dualistic consciousness. Some kind of minor awareness, knowing some object. Object just means that which a subject knows in order to um, speak about duality. Another word for object, I think, is, is uh, experience. That makes it a little less philosophical sounding and a little bit more experiential sounding. Any experience we're having I like to use this word experience to mean an event that is known by consciousness, an event that arises and ceases in time and space. So in that way, event, I mean, uh, yeah, even event or, or experience is the same as an object. And uh, those are six consciousnesses, six types of dualistic mind could say, and uh, sometimes the the later tradition evolved into talking about a couple more. They sort of tacked some more onto that. Like there's a seventh consciousness that's the um, the sense of myself as a separate subject. That was there already in the in the earlier model, but um, it's so important the sense of me as a separate subject aware of experience uh, is so central to understanding and meditation that we're going to call it its own consciousness, the seventh. And then the eighth is sometimes called the store conscious, storehouse consciousness that's like the, um, the kind of unconscious containers storehouse of all past experiences and all our karmic, uh, the, you know, the effects of all our past karmic actions are stored there. It's not really some place that they're stored, but maybe a little bit like, our, like Jung's unconscious sounds a little bit like a storage of past memories and events and maybe even... Um, very early stuff, and maybe even from past lives and so on. But not really like a, a, it's not a physical place. But we could say it accounts for like memory and it accounts for um, uh, how karma can work and so on. And, uh, and so it's called a consciousness too, even though it's kind of an unconscious 
it's it's not like the all the other the, the first six for sure are all knowing some object those are six ways of being aware of experience the seventh is kind of like the sense of being the one who is aware of experience and this eighth is just like the kind of um, array of all experiences so in a way it's not exactly a like the other dualistic consciousnesses that's knowing an object, but it's like, it's the storehouse of all dualistic experience. So it's, it's um, kind of distorted in this way. We could say the storehouse is kind of like, um, like our hard drive. We each have a hard drive that stores all this data, and it doesn't show up on the screen. Right? It's, it's kind of like, um, and yet, everything that shows up on the screen of experience, of knowing, is um, kind of coming, generated by the hard drive. But the hard drive is kind of like, can't be seen itself on the screen. So um, that's six types or eight types of mind, but particularly dualistic mind. And uh, one might say, doesn't that cover everything? Well, what about non-dual mind? Could there be such a thing? If we say mind in general is that which is aware, usually we think of aware of something. That's dualistic mind. But uh, there could be this other type of mind that also fits that definition of that which is aware, but not aware of something, just aware. And uh, it may be that it's not so different, really, from this dualistic consciousness. Sometimes, um, uh, like Suzuki Roshi uses these terms, small mind or limited mind. I think that's his colloquial way of talking about dualistic mind or consciousness. And then he uses this term big mind for non-dual awareness, non-dual mind. Big mind and small mind. It's good to, if we're going to use those terms, get a little bit more clear about what we mean. So that's why we've kind of now defined small mind or limited mind as these eight types of consciousness that where a subject seems to know an object other than itself, apart from itself. There's duality, a subject knowing an object. So big mind is not like that. But we could say big mind's not really something other than that it's more like when we, when we examine very carefully this dualistic mind, we see that actually its own true nature is this big mind. The actual reality or nature of small mind is big mind. But uh, we have to look carefully. So... Uh, So, let's just get right into it. (laughs) 
this, how might we, um, how might we access this big mind or get some sense of what we're even talking about? Uh, myself, I, I have some like kind of some tools, some methods I, I like to use in zazen to kind of um, work with this. And I know some of you have heard this kind of thing before, but uh, but um, often in Zen we don't hear about this kind of thing. We just we um, we talk about other methods, like um, methods to become present, like uh, following the breath, for example, like mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of body, or just pay attention to the sounds or pay attention to. Um, everything in our experience. I think these are all really good to get out of conceptual thinking mind into the present. But um, from this point of view that we're talking now, we could say all of those are kind of ways of working with dualistic consciousness. Right? The mind that's following the breath is, is, a, is a, apparently a subject being aware of an object or an experience called the breath or the body. So they, it's getting more and more subtle and refined versions of dualistic consciousness, these types of zazen. And so that, in that way, I think they're very helpful. But uh, how can we kind of you know, break out, break, break through this, this whole um, uh, appearance of duality? We maybe be able to do it in, in the, using these these um, methods, like following the breath so deeply that um, that the mind and the breath become one in experience. Uh, but here's another um, here's another method that's that's my favorite. It's kind of it's it's like we call vipassana which means like inquiry or insight. The word vipassana um, means like meditative inquiry or kind of questioning, experiential questioning, examination of our own experience. And it also means the result of the inquiry, which is like insight or like a new way of seeing. It's both the process and the result. So, during zazen, or not during zazen, anytime one can ask these questions, one can inquire into experience in these ways. And I think it's helpful if we're, if we're settled in zazen and our mind's not like running all over the place. So I like to, you know, actually attend to the breath and the posture for a while first. And, and sound, settle into the present, find the present. But um, these are questions that are, there's no rules about this, so one can ask them in the middle of total chaos, too. Sometimes, the, sometimes I find it helpful. I can't, I can't settle, I can't find the breath, um, or I can't stay with the breath. My mind is like is like a wild horse just running everywhere, it doesn't want to settle. I can still ask these questions. So this first question is, is, um, is awareness present? You can ask it when you're already 
really staying with the breath. It could ask it when I can't do anything here. I'm just, my mind is a mess. We can still ask this question in the middle of this turmoil. Is awareness present? Sometimes I'm instantly it's just like the whole mess goes like, oh yeah, it is. <laughs> or sometimes it's not necessarily that the mess evaporates, but it's more like behind the mess, there's, um, there's this awareness. It, you don't have to get rid of thinking or experience to, um, to, uh, to answer this question. It's a question that we ask ourselves, right? Is awareness present? That's the form, the most kind of concise form that, that uh, I like to use. But it, you, can, you can stylize it however you like. Like uh, another way to ask it is, um, is there experiencing? It's the same question in a different form. Remember the way that, that I'm defining experience here is, a, is an event happening in time and space that we're aware of. It's an object of attention. That's an experience. So this question is, is there experiencing right now? Experiencing of this experience. See the difference? Same thing. As, uh, experiencing is a synonym of awareness, the way I'm using them here. And consciousness is a type of awareness. It, but it's awareness of an experience. Uh, so, um, awareness here, when we first look for it to answer this question, we might find consciousness, we might find the sixth consciousness, mental consciousness, that's aware of an object, probably is what we find. Uh, and we have to start exploring it. But first we start with this question, is awareness present? So I invite you to try this out during Sashin, or at least try it out like right now while we're talking. <laughs> Ideally, these aren't sort of some theoretical thing to kind of like put in our box of potential methods, but like, you know, you can try it out right now. Is awareness present? And so here's some of the... the, the um, the kind of pitfalls or problems that we might fall into when we ask this question. <laughs> We're so used to this consciousness that's aware of objects that when we ask this question, we're so used to looking for objects and visual sounds, th thoughts, and so on, that when we, is awareness present, we're looking for it as another object. We can't help it. Because everything we pay attention to is an experience or an object. So we're looking for, we ask this question and we're looking for awareness now as another experience or object. And um, it's not one of them. It's, that's, we won't find it in that way. So that's why at first ask it, it may be frustrating. Is awareness present like, almost like the question starts to like, confuse our minds immediately. Like, oh, what do you mean? Like, what is that? So um, I would propose that oh, the awareness here is not some tricky, hidden thing. It's just what's aware of everything all the time. Right? So, um, so the answer to the question will always be yes. 
it's not like a question like, am I aware? Like, not right now, but let me check back later. <laughs> so we might, that would be another pitfall that we think. Awareness means like, I'm really clear and really present. And I'm not, I'm totally, my mind's in chaos. I'm totally scattered, so awareness is not present. That's not the kind of awareness I mean here. This awareness is the one that's always present. Whether it's, the mind is totally scattered and distracted, or totally concentrated and, and clear. If the mind's even totally sleepy and dull and it can't, it can't do anything, it won't do anything we want it to. Still, uh, there's an awareness of that. You could say there's the experience called dullness or distraction. These are experiences. There's an experience called total chaos. There's an experience of like, I can't do this. The feeling I can't do this. The experience of like, why am I in sashin? Um, those are all experiences and there's always an awareness of them. Right? So that's why if we ask, is awareness present? It is. <laughs> it is. And it's not one of those experiences. So we won't find it in that way. We won't find it in that way, and yet it's present. So already this is something really strange, really different from anything else. There's something that's always present, undeniably present, that can never be lost, and is our experience, it's, and it's not hidden. It's another important point. It's not like hidden and, and we have to um, um, find it in the deepest recesses of the unconscious or something. It's this awareness that w- with which we're experiencing sound and color and thought and sensation right now. This is it. This one is it. And yet, it can't be grasped, <laughs> as Dogen says, as, a, as an experience. But by asking this question, is awareness present? It, um, the question has a function. And now we know the answer is yes. But we, ha- we can ask it in this way as if we don't know the answer. It's important to, to not have this be a kind of mechanical thing, but, um, but uh, experiential investigation. Is awareness present? And uh, ask it like sincerely and kind of naively as if we don't know, and see what happens to the mind when we ask. Is there experiencing? How, how would we answer the question, right? How, where would we look to answer the question? Say, we can't look at any experience. So it's kind of what we're saying, where we're not looking, actually, right? So that's kind of what the question feels like it's doing, is it's, it's disengaging the awareness that's, that's um, attending to experiences and objects. It's just disengaging it a little bit from experiences and objects and not trying to fixate on a new experience called awareness because it's not an experience. You could just feel it like... The one that we could say the awareness that's, that's um, attending to experiences is always kind of outward directed. Colors seem to be out there, sounds, smells, tastes, even sensa- bodily sensations seem to be something apart from the, from the knowing of them. 
thoughts seem to be objects of experience. So, um, so that kind of outward, the, that kind of, the attention that's directed outward from the mind is, um, starts kind of receding back, we might say, more inward. But inward here is not like a location. It's not like in the head or something. So maybe we shouldn't even say in, inward. We should just say not outward. <laughs> but, but as ways of talking about this, we might say that kind of outward-facing um, awareness can kind of like step back a little bit. And Zen, sometimes we use these phrases like turning the light of awareness around and looking back. I think it's a poetic way of uh, of talking about the same meditation, but it's but it's a tricky one. You, easily because it's poetic, and it can be misunderstood. I think we, we can think that awareness. We're turning this phrase in Japanese, "ekko hensho," means turning the light around and shining back. But then we can think the light that's facing out towards object, we tur- somehow turn it back. But then we're looking for an object inside. So it's, it can be misleading. But I think that is the meaning. Dogen, in his essential Zazen instructions, says, um, learn, takes a little while to learn this, learn the backward step. Maybe that's even a little more clear. The backward step is not really turning around, it's just receding back. But he says, learn the backward step that turns the light around and shines it back. And then then his next sentence is, body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will manifest. So again, this is poetic Zen talk, but we could say, body and mind as experiences. We have an experience of body as physical tactile sensation, and we have experience of mind. Here I think mind means like thoughts and emotions and so on. Body and mind as these um, you know, experiences will drop away, or you could say at least they will recede to the background and the light of awareness will, um, will uh, arise, see, seem to arise in the foreground. It's not that it really arises, but it's more like um, the clouds start to, the mist starts to disperse, and that light of awareness that's always present um, starts to become more appreciated. Something like this. We can't, we can't see it, we can't grasp it. We can't know it as an object, but we can. We can be it. We can uh, settle into it. We can sink the um, dualistic consciousness. Can sink into this spaciousness of awareness. It's hard to talk about this, but these are all. <laughs> These are all attempts talking about something kind of specific. It's not really vague. It's just really hard to talk about. There's a particular um, 
shift that happens. Another pitfall is that we, th- we might feel that we have to um, stop all experience in order to get in touch with this experiencing awareness. It's virtually impossible to stop experience. There may be some really deep meditation states where there's no thinking or perceiving, but we're not trying to do that. We're just um, trying to settle into the knowing or the awareness or the experiencing at the same time as there's experiences. So I I like this uh, way of looking at it as kind of like background and foreground. Usually the the objects of the experiences are the foreground of our attention and there's this awareness in the background that we never pay attention to. It's always here, but we're just, it's not an experience, so we don't attend to it. This is kind of shifting that ratio of, you know, we're letting, we're letting um, the experiencing, the awareness come to the foreground, not as an object, but we're letting, we're putting some atten- attention or energy into asking this question, is awareness present? And we're letting the experiences still be there, but they're receding to the background a little bit. I think a nice metaphor for this is like, you're watching TV, and we're usually watching the, um, the movie on the screen, right? and which is the, the objects, the experiences that are happening there. And there's a screen that's, we could say behind them. It's not really actually behind them. The screen is like one with the images on the TV. But this is like the exercise of like starting to um, pay attention to the screen, which is kind of hard to do. And this was just a, a, a metaphor, but I think it's quite similar to this meditation process. Can we, can, we, can we, in the middle of watching the movie, start asking, is there a screen there? And actually, like, kind of look for it. And in a, it's similar in the sense that, again, it's a metaphor, which they break down, but we might actually be able to see the screen, but the screen will always be um, with the movie too, right? You don't have to turn off the movie to see the screen. It, it makes it easier to see the screen if you turn off the movie, right? Then it becomes obvious, but we're talking about not turning off the movie because those meditations are too hard. We can, we can, have, we can in, in Zazen, have more and more settled kind of movie. Like, like if, we're having, if we're watching a horror movie in Zazen, it's going to be harder to see the screen, right? So let's have just a movie of just like the breath. Just a really boring movie. <laughs> just like, it's just this pulsation of breath. And like, okay, now, like... I'm more and more open to um, see the screen right there. But, you know, it's, it's the same screen that's there during the horror movie. And as we get more used to this, we might be able to, if we remember to ask, remember to look, we might be able to find it during the horror movie. It's a, it's a great metaphor, I think, because the, the movie and the screen are not two things, really. And yet, we can talk about them as two kind of aspects. And just like we could say, like I said earlier, big mind is the true nature of small mind. The true reality of small mind is big mind. 
the true reality of the movie is the screen, the true nature of the movie. Like, what is the movie actually um, made of? It's just the screen, right? It's not made of, like, people and trees and things, really. It appears that way. So, um, we can't really grasp the screen as, as another object in the movie. And another, uh, another pitfall in this, we can, we can talk about it through this metaphor, is like, this movie is like our life, all the experiences of our life. So we are one of the movie characters, and we're, um, we're kind of like, we're looking for um, reality. We're looking for awareness in the movie of our life. So it'd be like the movie character, somebody in the movie is saying like, where's the screen? But they're looking in the movie, right? <laughs> they are the screen, right? It's, this is often what we do though in meditation. These, and you can check this out if this is a, a new thing for you. These are all, we'll probably have to work through these various, they're subtle points. We can, um, we can st- start to have this sense of being the screen while the movie's playing. So then, so this question is a nice one. I find, if, you, if it doesn't work for you, you can, once you get, you get the gist, you can make up your own, but is, aware, is awareness present? Or is, ex- is there experiencing? Again, we're always talking about right now. We're not, and we're not talking theoretical. <laughs> we're talking about for me right now. Is there experiencing? Or another way to ask it would be, um, it's a little, maybe this is a little bit harder, but what is it that, is, that knows this experience? What is it that knows the experience of this room and this conversation and these sounds and these sensations and these, all of this. What is it that knows that? They're all the same. I think that one's a little, I think it's a little harder because then we're looking for some, some answer. Um, we're looking to answer the question, what is it that knows? Or like, you know, who am I is the classic thing too. But then we're looking for some Answer, whereas, is awareness present? I think it's nice because it gives you the answer. You don't have to, like, search around for some mysterious thing. We're just talking about awareness. It's like, start with the answer and then just ask, is it here? And it is. <laughs> we can confirm that it's here. So, so far, is there, um, is there anybody who... who um, isn't sure if awareness is present? <laughs> so, if awareness was not present, you wouldn't be able to hear me speaking, right? And you wouldn't see anything. Is this awareness the non-dualistic mind? It could be either. We're approaching the non-dual, but it could be like, if we say, um, it's the um, awareness. Is, I know awareness is present because I can see you. 
You know, you could say in a way that's kind of like the dualistic consciousness that sees an object, right? So you could say it's the, it's at first it might seem like yeah there is awareness that knows things, and I know that I because I can see you that's kind of proof that there's awareness, right? So in that way it's like we, if we say no I'm not aware we could say well then how did you hear me ask, right? It's it's like that obvious this kind of awareness. But it's so strange, right? Because, well, what, I know I'm aware, but what, I can't see it. That's what we're talking about here, right? So strange. And yet we know that we're aware. If somebody would say, maybe you're not aware. Maybe, um, maybe I'm just talking you into the fact that you're aware, but you're really not aware, right? It's like, well, then, if you're experiencing, right? Maybe you could use that phrase might be more helpful. Um, Is there experiencing? Yeah, that one we really can't say no, right? Is there experiencing happening right now? Um, and again, it might be, when we first look, it, it probably is dualistic consciousness is what we find there. We're finding this mental consciousness that knows things, but we're getting in touch with the knowing rather than, which we usually don't pay attention to, the knowing rather than the object. So... Uh, we may be, um, another nice one I, I like to bring up here is, I, you know, it's, it's a lot harder when we start looking at this to, to confirm anything about the actual experiences themselves. That I have a lot more doubt about. Like, for example, um, we could be dreaming right now. We could be asleep and dreaming. It's like, I feel like I'm probably not dreaming, but my dreams are pretty much like this. They seem like waking life when I'm dreaming, right? And then, uh, and then I wake up and I said, those, those objects were not, they seem so real. Dualistic consciousness is functioning in the dream. And it, it seems like the sense consciousnesses are functioning in the dream. But we wake up and we see they weren't. The eyes were closed, right? So this is an example of, there was just one non-dual awareness. But even in a dream, it can, because it's so used to doing this, it can divide itself into a subject. We also feel like we're a subject in the dream. Usually there's a sense of being a, a, someone, with a, someone who's seeing and hearing in the dream. Amazing. There isn't a subject there, right? And there isn't an object. Um, so we may be dreaming right now, but um, even if we're dreaming, awareness is present. That's the one undeniable thing. That's the one thing I could say for sure. I don't know if I'm dreaming. I don't know if this is a t- total hallucination. But what, is it even artificial intelligence? Whatever it is, awareness is present. <laughs> That's the undeniable. I would, for me, I would say this is the only a 100% sure fact. Everything else is somewhat up for question. So this is the kind of awareness we're talking about. Is the one that like no one could talk us out of. Whatever state we're in, awareness is aware of it. There's an experiencing of it. So, um, so you two now that w- weren't quite sure if you were aware, if awareness was present, how about now? <laughs> <laughs> we're clarifying what we mean by awareness here, right? So... What would you say? I think it's when you ask the question, the mental construction of 
I've been convinced comes up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. the, yeah. the <coughs> I want to raise my hand because I feel the construction and not the awareness. Thank you. No, it's great. No, we, we have to be ruthlessly honest about this with ourselves. And um, so, yeah, if we feel like, I think Coco is pulling a fast one on me. <laughs> He's talking me into something that's not true. And maybe at later things will start to sound this way as it gets a little stranger. But, um, but this one, I think, I think we should be able to all agree. Um, anyone on the street, you don't have to be a meditator. Are you, are, is there experiencing? Are you experiencing some experience right now? If you're conscious and awake anyway, can you, you know, if you can hear and see, even if you're, even if you have no, if, even if you're blind and deaf, you don't need your, all your sense faculties. If you're blind and deaf, there's experiencing going on, right? If all five or six consciousnesses, you can get down to like maybe even all five sense consciousnesses are almost shut off. Um, I, I like to, in Santa Cruz, there's a bunch of these flotation tanks, sensory deprivation tanks. I like to play, I like to meditate and those just you know, experiment with these things. And um, the idea there is you're trying to, all five of your physical senses, you're trying to mi- minimize them to the complete minimal. It, no, there's no sound at all. There's no sight at all. And you're floating in this high-density salt. So the idea is you, you, the sense of being a body is, is even, disappears even more than if you're lying on a bed. If you're, you know, you try to so comfortable, right? And so, in a way, it's like all that's left is this six consciousness, and um, it's definitely there's awareness there. It's not like you just go to, you might go to sleep because you're so relaxed, but um, but if you're awake, it it heightens the sense of the of awareness. I think it's what it, what, what that uh, experience does. It's it um, awareness that doesn't and awareness that it doesn't need an object, other thoughts. So anyway, um, even in a tank like that, there's um, awareness is always present. You know, we could say deep sleep, let's just put that aside for now. Our repose is still there, but, but uh, let's, not, let's not talk about that. So anyone, um, anyone think that I'm talking them into something that's not true? I don't think that, but uh, I just wanted to say that there is this thing that I think we're talking about that I'm aware of, but it's so mysterious. It's so hard for me to grasp and understand what it is. I almost feel some doubt answering very confidently yes, that there is this thing here because I don't really know precisely what it is. That's exactly right. That's a great description of it. We don't know precisely what it is. And I would say nobody knows precisely. Even the Buddhas don't know precisely what it is. The title of this is Ungraspable Mind. Mind cannot be grasped. So um, that's exactly what it's like. And, and even strictly speaking, we shouldn't really call it a thing. A thing is like an experience. It's not a thing. Even to call it mind is, limits it. It's not anything. It's not anything, actually. And yet, to call it nothing, 
doesn't seem quite right either, does it? I mean, experientially. Put aside philosophy. This is experiencing right now. It's not something. It's not anything. But it's not nothing. Nothing is like, there's nothing. There's no experiencing. There is experiencing. But it's not a thing. So, again, this is something very strange. It's unlike anything else. It's like unlike any experience. Because it, just by, um, and we hear things in Buddhism like neither existence nor non-existence, and it sounds like that's just some philosophical, you know, wordplay. But here we can, we can directly come to, to um, quite simply, I think, um, start confirming there's this realm or this reality. I don't mind calling it a reality right now. But it doesn't exist, not an existent reality. But uh, there's, a, there's, there's experiencing right now that doesn't, we can't say it exists like the way anything else exists, but we can't say it doesn't exist. Can you follow that? You can bring these, these explorations into Zazen and spend some time with them too. Yeah. As I try and, I don't know if focus is the right way, but place my awareness in the awareness, uh, I wonder if you find the same thing. In order to confirm, am I, am mm-hmm. I you know, being mm-hmm. aware of where everything, as I'm doing it now, all the people in the room, all the, everything else that, that you see or hear, it kind of recedes. It's like you say, it goes into the background. Mm-hmm. And I have a sense of everything else, kind of, you're, you're less involved with everything else that recedes into the background. Yeah, I think that's a good description. Uh, we're still talking, I see you, and I hear you, so you're somewhat, it's hard not to do the foreground thing when we're talking, right? But there's a little sense of, yeah, a little, I think that's right, especially if we're not talking. Sashin's good for this. There's a little bit more, like, like I think you, you said it nicely, a little less involved with experiences. And they're still happening, but we're less involved with them. So already, that's a, great, uh, um, that's a great hint at some of the benefits of this type of meditation. The painful suffering of excessive involvement in our experiences right, is, um, it starts to become more easy to work with. Just, we can still do them, but... Um, yeah, less excessively involved. And in a way, it's maybe a little bit more like dreamlike in a way. Maybe when we're actually dreaming, there's some sense sometimes that we're dreaming or it's, things are a little looser. Maybe not necessarily because we can get pretty disturbed in dreams too. But, um, but it's not like something actually changes really. Nothing's really really changing, but we could say it's a, it's a slightest shift of perspective. I think we could say it like that. Slight shift of perspective or emphasis. And uh, we might say the slightest. You know, we, again, you can contemplate this metaphor of the, of the TV. Um, when you're watching the movie and you, and you kind of do this stupid thing of like, let's look at the screen now. It's the slightest shift, right? And yet, it's huge. 
at the same time. It's so, and it's a shift we almost never, most humans, I don't know, most. I bet, though, maybe most humans in an entire lifetime might not ever ask this question. So, some might, or some might discover it naturally, but isn't that amazing that we're so into experiences that we could go through a whole lifetime and never notice that there's an experiencing of them? At least really like appreciate that there is. Yes? Uh, I, I feel like, I think it's your word, I, I'm trying to, I think if I am aware of my awareness, my experience is heightened. Remember, we have two different words here. Yeah, no, experience just, so it's sort of and experiencing. Like, yeah, so, so it's sort of like, uh, I think what gets the way of, of, uh, of joy, let's say, is, is uh, you're calling objects, make, making the objects more real than the experience. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. sort of doing a little switch uh, like that. Or the experiencing. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's... So I think you, you, yeah, you're making a point a little different here, right? Because yeah, I was seeing we're less involved. Yeah, but, but, uh, well, I see what you're saying. Okay, so, so I, would, I would say um, both can be together. We could be um, a little bit less involved in a kind of grasping way, but, more, but maybe experiences are more vivid, like, just like you said. Yeah. They're more bright. Colors are brighter. Yeah. Sounds are clearer. Thoughts are more um, wondrous. Because you're using experience a lot, like objects of the mind a lot. I, I, yes. You're talking, I'm not sure I, that's the part that I'm not aware of. Objects of mind and experiences are, would, are synonyms in this. See, and they get brighter. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what sounds like, I mean, I think the uh, way I interpret my own ex- process <laughs> or something <laughs> is that I can, if I conflate or confuse my concepts or objects of mind with the actual experience. Like, like, you, like, like we're, this thing says you can't grasp the mind. You can't grasp anything. Yes, we're going to get to that point. If you try to, that's when you sort of, like, sort of bummed out, right? Yeah. And, they, and you could say the reason we grasp things, grasping things is basically, in order to grasp things, we have to um, believe that they are separate from the awareness. They have to be outside. That's what, we're ta- that's what dualistic consciousness means. Dualistic consciousness, even the sense consciousnesses, I would say, are inherently grasping. They're, they're, you can't have a consciousness that doesn't grasp, I would propose. Grasping can be quite subtle or quite gross. But, and as soon as there's duality of a subject and an object, that is, that is grasping. I would say, from a Buddhist perspective. And then we might not notice that just an eye seeing a color is grasping, but the Buddha kind of talks that way sometimes. And then we notice when we get really into the grasping. We really solidify an object. But um, I wouldn't make a difference between an object and an experience, at least in this model that I'm speaking of. Experience is just another term for um, object. They're both something that arises and ceases that seems to be external to awareness. And uh, they can be good or bad, and we're always grasping them to some extent, and sometimes we grasp them a lot. But if we're resting in um, the space of awareness, um, I think we're, we're, 
we start grasping them less and less, which means we're less involved with them. And at the same time, they don't become dull or hazy. They become more vivid and more enjoyable, even, um, because we're grasping them less. So all this goes together. We'll keep, we'll keep, let's keep working this. I'm wondering if that almost, what you're saying just there is that even the Buddha was saying that almost all experience is grasping. Experience. Yeah, Mm -hmm. experience. Yeah. Um, Even just noticing a color or something because I and I consciousness are there. Yeah. Um, It's very subtle grasping. Yeah, and I'm hearing what you're saying about grasping less and there can even be appreciation of vividness and it just mm-hmm. arises and mm-hmm. and yep. you're not grasping it or holding on to it but it's there but it's like what you're saying is surprising to me and I'm entertaining it but while I'm being surprised I'm also doubting it and part of the doubt is are we almost pathologizing all experience then in a way like all experience is grasping because what if there is just an arising and a ceasing and a noticing of it, and an awareness of it, and an appreciation of it, um, is it necessarily grasping? There can be that too, and I think within Buddhism there's, there's gross and subtlety, right? So now we're talking a pretty subtle level here. When the Buddha sometimes talks about the five skandhas are in themselves grasping, the, the grasping skandhas. And um, so just to be a sentient being is, um, is subtle grasping. We're talking about these, you know, these different types, there's suffering that comes from the suffering of pain, there's the suffering of, of pleasure that comes from the impermanence of pleasure, and then there's this all-pervasive dissatisfaction in the Buddha's early teachings, because this all-pervasive, unconscious, slight dissatisfaction is this like constant grasping. But this is not going to be a sad story. It's not, there, there's a realm where there's no grasping at all. And that's what this is about, <laughs> I would say. There is total non-grasping. It's not even like, um, where there's still uh, the appearance of colors and sounds and experiences happening, but um, there's a different understanding, what we call non-duality. And non-duality by, again, by duality by definition is always grasping. Non-duality by definition cannot be grasping because there's no two things to grasp each other. Non-duality means there's just unity. So there's no grasping is not even possible. And uh, um, so, yes, it's not going to be a bad news story here. But we have to be, but, you know, maybe this is being too nitpicky, but um, this is a nice opportunity of Sashin to get into like the subtlety of an all-pervasiveness of dualistic consciousness and its, and its inherent grasping. It's kind of, it's kind of it's sobering. <laughs> it's kind of like, from this, in this model, I would say every experience we've ever had is, um, is grasped. That's what an experience is. It's, and there's some, therefore, there's some, some level, degree of dissatisfaction with every experience. But again, we're not going to just leave it there. We're talking about liberation and freedom and joy. But we have to be really clear what's not that. <laughs> yes? Um, so I realize that I'm doing it all wrong. Thank you very much. Uh, 
I think I'm giving preference to the turkeys over future and, and past thoughts. So, for example, like I'll be thinking a thought that I had during Zazen was, I made those brownies and they all crumbled. <laughs> that was a thought. And then I think, what am I going to make uh, next? Will it crumble? And then I think, shit, the turkeys. Are you listening to the turkeys? No, you're right. No, I don't see you, ha- you don't have it all wrong. Okay. I think that's super helpful to pay attention to the turkeys instead of the brownies. <laughs> like, the, I mean, this is going to say the past, future, and present mind are ungraspable. But um, I think, like I said last night, First, let's really be present. Let's be totally devoted to the present. Um, that's not wrong. That's like um, that's excellent and hard to train the mind back into the present when it wanders off. And that's often how we talk about the entirety of Zen practice. And so um, I just can't refrain from offering this, you know, kind of the next steps that is that is more than just being present. Um, and maybe it's too much sometimes. So if any of this ever seems like getting too, getting us to, getting the conceptual mind too um, agitated, just listen to the turkeys. <laughs> you can never go wrong with that. <laughs> but um, but you could say if you're already getting somewhat used to, and I, and I think it is helpful to first pay attention to the turkeys instead of the brownies. And then if we were like, you don't have to, you can do this with the brownie thought too, as I mentioned earlier, but I think great, I think it's generally, and the tradition is more like, first you pay attention to turkeys, you get, and, you just, and the breath and the body. And, and, um, and then while doing that, we can ask this question that what is it that's aware of the sound of turkeys? And it's, it's like another, um, another level or another <coughs> type of meditation. That's, and that which is um, aware of it is not just the sound of the turkeys. We're not, the meditation is no longer attending to the sound of turkey or the breath, but, but that which is aware of the breath, that which is aware of the turkeys. It's definitely more subtle. And, um, and you all brought up great points about when we start doing it, these strange doubts and questions come up. Not, if they don't, I think we're maybe not really doing it. They, we should have a lot of questions. <laughs> and, uh, and, and a follow-up, if we, if we can get to the point where we can say, yes, awareness is present. I don't know what it is. It's not a thing. I can't get a hold of it. And yet I can't deny it. And it's not nothing either. But awareness is present. Then, um, I think a nice follow-up question to this is, uh, what is it that can say yes so confidently to that question, is awareness present? Or what is it that knows that awareness is present? Is awareness present? Yes. Yeah, okay, now I'm, no one has to convince me, I'm convinced. You can you know, spend some time with this, but once you're convinced in your own experience, not from, not from me, that awareness is present, just, then you can ask, 
what is it that knows that awareness is present? Something is able to confirm that and say, like, yeah, it is present. It's not just an idea. It's not a, if, if I'm talking you into it, then it maybe is a conceptual idea. But if you come to see, yeah, of course there's experiencing happening. Like, we get more used to it, it's more like, well, of course. It's, it's ne- experience is never not happening. It's that kind of like, it's and it almost like, it's more and more like the most obvious reality, even though we can't get a hold of it. Then we ask, what is it that knows that is so? And we might say, well, then there must be another awareness or something that knows that. But I would propose there's not another one behind that. There's not another screen behind the screen. There's just one screen called experiencing. So if um, that experiencing is kind of like, um, is, is kind of confirmed, and there's a kind of, we feel a kind of confidence, there is experiencing, and nobody can talk me out of it. What is it that knows that so clearly? Experiencing knows it. Awareness knows it. The same awareness knows itself as being aware. Again, you, might, you have to work that a little bit in meditation. But, um, but the nice thing about this follow-up question is um, it's, um, we can start to, it, bec- it starts to come more um, into view that awareness, it's a self-knowing awareness. Awareness knows itself all the time at the same time as it's knowing colors and sounds and, and all. And the Buddhist tradition um, says this. Although there's some, there's some debate within the vast scope of the Buddhist tradition, some people don't like to talk that way. And I think the ones who don't like to talk that way are the ones who say, awareness must be some sort of object. And then if awareness can't, how could awareness know itself as some object? And they come up with phrases like, how could a knife cut itself? How could an eye see itself? And even in sutras, you find that's the argument against what I'm saying. But I think the problem there is that they're saying the eye that's seeing itself is, there's a subtle split of like, it's seeing itself as some experience. There's no this self-knowing awareness, there's no duality. It's like, instead of like the eye seeing itself, which it can't do, right? It's more like, those are metaphors that, that try to refute this, I would say. How about the metaphor of like the sun illuminating itself? It does. <laughs> the sun illuminates all things, all experiences, like the light of awareness, and it also illuminates itself at the same time. We don't, we, you know, it just doesn't. It's not saying that it's doing that or something, right? But this is. I think this question can help confirm that. It, first, we ask: Is awareness present? We first, like, more and more, um, become more confident in the conclusion that awareness or experiencing really is always present, even when we're totally distracted. But we're not going to grasp it as, some, as an experience or something. We just know that it is so. And feel that it is so. And, and then we can ask, well, what is it that knows it is so? What is it that knows so, so clearly and obviously that awareness is present right now? 
awareness knows this. We could say, if we know it as a, as a conceptual idea, then it's conceptual consciousness that knows it. But we're talking about what really knows it 100%, like, like if a whole bunch of philosophers, like their sutras came in and said, an eye can't see itself, and a knife can't cut itself. So um, awareness, you're not really aware that you're aware right now. You'd say, I don't care what you say. I know I'm aware right now. <laughs> those, are just, those are just like false analogies. <laughs> I know I'm aware right now. No one can talk me out of it. And what is it that knows that? Awareness knows that. So now we're getting into the territory of like a, a non-dual awareness. If we can con- confirm that awareness knows itself all the time, what, we're not attending to that, but it knows it's, it's aware of itself at the same time as it's aware of experiences. We might even say that the fact that we can remember past experiences, we remember some event that happened, or we remember like baking the brownies, right? But um, what we're remembering is the awareness of baking the brownies, we might say. We're remembering the experiencing because there was experiencing of that experience of baking the brownies. So we, awareness was aware of itself while it was baking the brownies. And we remember the experience of baking the brownies, but we also remember the experiencing of that event. So, yeah. I, I really have trouble with the phrase, um, you know, what knows, and we say awareness knows. Mm-hmm. I have trouble with that verb knows. Mm-hmm. It, it, that, because that gets me into that self-reflective, endless... Yes. Is it, is it another way to express that, to say awareness is? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I agree that knowing, usually when we... The, the word knowing means um, knowing something, knowing an experience. It's an object. As an object, yeah. So, so all these all these words that are flying around all have sort of traps in them, and and um, but I, I I really am warming up to the word knowing as just basic. There can be knowing without an object. Our great Zen ancestor Hung Jir has his poem about zazen. He says zazen is knowing without touching things. What we're talking about here, zazen is knowing without meeting objects. It's a non-dual knowing. Uh, interestingly, that the Sanskrit term jnana, not jnana, but j n a n a jnana. Remember, vijnana is dualistic consciousness. And V means to divide or to split. Vijnana is dualistic consciousness. Jnana is the root of vijnana. Jnana is usually translated as um, awareness, non-dual, not split awareness. You could say split awareness is consciousness. Unsplit, unified awareness is jnana. And you could translate it as awareness, but also knowing. And the Chinese character they use for that called uh, or qi, uh, with like a um, like a like a sun 
radical. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, in, in, uh, in Japanese, it's chi. Yeah. And like we said, zhi. Would you in Chinese in, in pinyin? Yeah, in pinyin. Is that how you? Sorry, I'm confused now. I think there's um. Yeah. Well, we can look. Th- we can look at it later, but um. But there's this character that that they that also means, in Chinese, something like what would you say awareness, if we're talking about the same character, or knowing. Ju, knowing or awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They. Um, so, I, so I like to use those those both those words like knowing, but but not a not a dualistic knowing, the way we usually know things, but just no cognizance. There's another word. Cognizance doesn't have that. Cognizing. I think any any verb with an ing on the end is a good word to use because nouns tend to contract into some graspable thing, whereas verbs are more like activity. So, so awareness has the, that problem of contract. It's a noun, right? It can be something that we could try to grasp, whereas being aware, it's another way of saying it, is maybe help, more helpful because it's just the act, you can't grasp being aware as a thing, right? And knowing and experiencing all these ing words are, I think, can be helpful. But again, we're trying, we're point, these are all fingers pointing at the moon with, with words about some subtlety. But you, you can try in Zazen. Um, is awareness present? Is, is there experiencing? What is it that's knowing all experience? right now, and then what is it that knows that experiencing is present? What is it that knows that knowing is, hap- is that this is knowing? And uh, we find it's just knowing that knows there's knowing. And meanwhile, there's all kinds of regular old experiences happening, but in the background, the screen is just being the screen. This is a special kind of screen. It's a self-knowing screen. The screen knows that it's a screen. While the screen no- is watching the movie. The screen knows the movie, and it knows itself as a screen. That's where the... It's a little different than a TV. So the exercise is kind of to get used to this knowing, right? Mm-hmm. simply... Knowing it is kind of not enough, right? That's why you continue to ask. To it's settle in, right? So we, you, you talk about settling in, and we always practice often, or you know, whatever practices that people do, is to kind of get comfortable with it. Totally. More in sync with It's definitely not a one-time question. Right, yeah. So we can ask, and sometimes... Suddenly, no, and like yeah, yeah. Completely liberated. Okay, now check. We're done with check, that. You know, like, <laughs> no, it's like I mean, in Zazen, I, I like over and over again um, ask this, and I tend to fall into the problem more of like 
um, I think I maybe ask too much because at some point you it has this, there's this effect you can start to notice if you ask it in a sincere way. There's this little shift. It's subtle, but you feel this little shift. Sometimes I even feel like there's some signs that come along with it, like Jeff's talking about. Things might seem look more clear. I find there's also signs like the body actually relaxes a little bit. And I think that's because of what you say. We're a little less in, involved in experiences. And there's, this experiencing is very spacious. And by its, def, by its nature, it's always content. And the body, the experience of the body is, starts to align with that. Oh. It feels like, you know how Apple just came out with the lens that has bokeh, where you can either focus on the background or blur the background to highlight the portrait. And that's what it feels like to me, is the focus starts mm-hmm. reducing a little. Yeah, yeah, so it's like this. And we can ask it and then feel this little shift. And then we can just settle, we can stop asking. If we, if we kind of, you can feel a little, it's called like a little sense of confirmation or something. When the answer yes comes, is awareness present? Like, kind of like, a yes that, you can't fake it either, right? Don't try to shortcut and be like, yeah, yeah, it's present. <laughs> you have to be, you have to, it's, in, it's your own very intimate process. Like, yeah, yeah. And then at that point, it's nice to just, and just rest as as that screen of awareness while there's still experiencing happening. And it's, again, even harder to talk about what that is, but we're kind of resting with that confidence that awareness is present. But then we lose that, and we're back into, even back into turkey sounds, not to mention brownie making, then we kind of ask it again as, <coughs> as awareness present. And sometimes, um, I love this Vipassana stuff, so I maybe like, don't take enough time to just rest there and like start doing all there's all these other explorations once you once you get there then um well we think we can talk about it later but you can once you're resting as awareness as awareness then things get really interesting you can start exploring yourself as awareness in relationship to experiences and stuff like this but uh first we have to really do this first this first step i in a way, I would say, actually, in a way, these first two questions maybe aren't exactly Vipassana. They're more like get us into what we call shamatha, like calm abiding, but with no, um, without, calm abiding with no object. The, just the, mi- the mind resting in itself. And then while it's doing that, then it can start asking, like when I say, does it exist or not exist? That's a kind of a Vipassana kind of question. While, while being the awareness that we're just resting as awareness is present, yes. Then we can say, this awareness that I, I feel quite sure now is present, even though I can't get it. Does it seem to be the kind of thing that exists? Like, no, it's not like that. Which is, then it must be the kind of thing that doesn't exist. That's going too far the other way. These are that, I think those questions are, are the kind of... Vipassana kind of inquiry. So that, that's a lot on, on the first character of this essay. <laughs> Shin. We better not do this with every character. <laughs> Shin Fukutoku. So that's, that's uh, Shin.
we're going to continue. But two, two dualistic mind, small mind, and, and a big mind or non-dual awareness is that which is always aware. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.